You're listening to the Transforming India podcast, jointly brought to you by the Deepak and Neera Raj Center on Indian Economic Policies at Columbia University and the Times of India. I am Arvind Panagariya, Director of the Raj Center and Professor of Economics at Columbia. My co-host on this podcast is Professor Praveen Krishna. He is a Professor of International Economics and Business at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Praveen. Hi, Arvind. I'm happy to join you for this 11th episode of our podcast. In the last episode, we had touched on economic issues that arise from the coronavirus threat. Since then, the scope of this threat has expanded substantially. So I thought we should devote this entire episode to the discussion of what this pandemic means for India's economy and for government policy. I had the same thought, Praveen. With that in mind, I have asked Sajid Chinoy, the chief India economist of JP Morgan to join us. As you know, Sajid has been writing regularly on this subject. He is also someone who has joined us before on the podcast in our previous episode on India's economic slowdown. I'm really glad you asked Sajid to help us sort through this complex subject of it. Perhaps it will be best to begin with some background on where we stand at the moment. The number one priority will obviously be health, containing the spread of the virus to the population and tackling all health emergencies. Except for whatever is required on the health front, farm activities and essential products and services, India has been in a complete lockdown since March 24th. During this lockdown, no economic activity outside of these sectors can take place. Hence, beyond dealing with all the health emergencies, the role of government policy is essentially confined to two areas. One, it must ensure that people have access to basic necessities, such as food and water, to cope with the lockdown. And two, it must help firms of all sizes in maintaining cash flow so that no viable businesses are forced out simply due to liquidity reasons. The 1.7 trillion rupee package announced by the finance minister was aimed at solving the first problem, and the slew of measures announced by the RBI addressed the second problem. The package by the finance minister ensured that 75% of rural and 50% of the urban population have access to 10 kilograms of food grains and one kilo of lentils per month for three months starting on March 24th. It also provided some modest cash transfers to various disadvantaged groups. The RBI package in turn gave borrowers some reprieve from paying interest and principal on their loans for three months. The finance minister's package further reinforces this by picking up the contribution towards provident funds or EPFO dues of both the employee and the employer. And luckily, it is very well timed too because Sajid has just joined us. A very warm welcome to you, Sajid. Thank you, Arvind. Thank you, Praveen. A pleasure to be here as always. Perfect. So I thought, Sajid, I would begin by asking you a question related to the current lockdown. So during the period during which we are in a lockdown, what would you have advised the government to do more on the economic front? To be more specific, while we are in a lockdown, only farm activities and activities related to essential products and services, other than, of course, uh, anything that one has to deal with on the health front, are permitted. Given this fact, it would seem that any transfers or potential expenditures other than what are needed to help people get their meals and other essential expenses will fail to translate into effective demand. And even if they turn into effective demand, 
they would generate no supply response under such circumstances what do you make of the suggestions by many who have criticized the current package as being too small and urge the government to follow up or follow the us lead in announcing a mega package amounting to as much as 10% of the gdp uh, thank you arvin that's a very good question i think as you alluded to in your question uh, given that 80% of india's labor force is largely informal and we don't have any formal employment insurance at least in the urban areas i think the first order of business was to provide and create a safety net uh, for informal workers for low income households and i think this is not just for equity reasons but also for incentive compatibility reasons uh, to ensure that these daily wage workers you know uh, stay at home for 3 weeks uh, and don't go out looking for work uh, during the lockdown it was important i think to create a safety net for them i think the food component in the package is particularly important because i think this ensures that you know nobody goes hungry number 2 Uh, sometimes food prices tend to spike in lockdowns uh, because of supply side bottlenecks or supply side shortages supply chain bottlenecks and therefore i think giving households enough food in kind uh, was really important at this stage and i think thirdly india is sitting on this huge pile of grain in in our godowns uh, and so we hold these stocks uh, precisely for moments like this and if in fact not only does it help an equity purpose but it reduces the carrying cost to the exchequer of keeping these oversized stocks so i think for all these reasons the food component was very important uh, i think you know this is a good start to the safety net uh, if it turns out that states uh, continue with the lockdown perhaps more support will be needed and i also think given that we've seen a fair amount of reverse migration now from the urban areas uh, to the rural areas we already have um, unemployment insurance in the rural economy in the form of nrega uh, and the and the beauty of this is that it has an automatic stabilizing component it's a demand driven program so as the economy gradually opens up i think we should ensure that nrega is fully funded because it will help all the migrant workers that have gone back in terms of providing daily wages and you can also do nrega work in the rural areas while maintaining a social distance so i think the combination of these things should provide a safety net to start with so we should wait at least in terms of the package getting larger again i'm sort of pushing you a little bit on this set of proposals some have made that the package should be 10% of the gdp or so I think Arvind one has to be very careful here I know the developed markets can take these liberties we've seen unprecedented uh, fiscal stimulus in developed markets the US has done 10% of gdp credit guarantees in europe have been between 15 to 30% of gdps but you can take these liberties and you can have such expansive deficits when you are the reserve currency of the world or when you've got exorbitant privilege and you know markets don't hold you to account If you're in emerging markets, I think the situation is very, very different. We've already seen over the last six weeks a massive outflow of capital from emerging markets. In the month of March, for example, this is much higher than what we saw during the Lehman crisis. We're seeing investors get nervous about emerging markets, uh, sell everything they can. You've got a Minsky moment uh, playing out as they rush back to a uh, core country assets, and you're also seeing that ratings agencies are breathing down the neck of some emerging markets. it south africa for example uh, got downgraded last week so i think we cannot simply transplant uh, the policies and the fiscal expansiveness in developed markets to emerging markets because the starting points there and the constraints there are very different uh, and therefore i don't think it's reasonable at all especially given india's 
current fiscal position to expect a fiscal package anywhere close to 10% of GDP. There's no doubt that fiscal space is very limited. Uh, and I think, therefore, we need to use that fiscal space intelligently. And I would argue there should perhaps be two principles that we should use uh, when thinking about fiscal space. One is to be very targeted because resources are limited. And the second is for any support to be temporary. So we want deep support during the crisis, but an automatic manner for this to be rolled back so that fiscal deficits become sustainable again once the crisis has passed. And I'll just say, you know, if one has to push to say, where should that fiscal money be spent? I think it should be on three areas. One, of course, is this is a war on COVID. So a lot of spending and whatever is required on healthcare, you know, whether it's creating hospital capacities, a fever camps, isolation and quarantine wards, procuring masks, uh, protective equipment, ventilators, whatever it takes on the health front. I think that should be priority number one. Priority number two is to provide more income support for the most vulnerable who will take the disproportionate hit of this shock. And number three, as I'm sure we'll discuss later, it is to backstop the financial sector. And we can talk about how this may be done, but we may well need a host of credit guarantees or recapitalization funds to ensure that the initial COVID shock does not get amplified. I think the economic policy cannot stop the proliferation of the virus. What it can do is to prevent amplification of the shock through labor market channels and through the financial sector. And therefore, having enough fiscal resources to backstop the financial sector should be, I think, one of the three priorities. So I think we need to be very targeted and very intelligent in how fiscal space is used in India. Great, Sajid. Let me also ask you this. Are there policy actions you think that the government should announce during the lockdown to ensure that once the lockdown is lifted, that the economy can quickly return to kind of pre-corona activity and then to a decent growth rate? Praveen, I think that's a very good question. Uh, because as I mentioned, I think the, you know, the key focus of economic policy now, fiscal and monetary, uh, should be to avoid amplification of this shock particularly through the financial system, through labor markets, and to ensure that we don't have too many bankruptcies, especially when it comes to small, medium enterprises, which are very labor intensive. Because I think the extent, the speed and the quantum with which we recover from the shock will depend a lot on whether permanent damage is caused. Uh, have, a, have a lot of jobs being lost because then that has second down impacts on, on aggregate demand, also on the financial system if that leads to delinquencies for personal loans. Have a lot of SMEs being forced to close down because there's a lot of institutional and human uh, capital in there that's embedded. Uh, and how much stress is there in the financial sector? Given that we already saw flight to quality before the COVID crisis and given that the financial sector uh, has undergone a, a couple of challenging years. So uh, I think that should be the focus. So what are some of the specific steps? You know, the RBI has frankly started off with a very important bazooka. Uh, we've had a hundred basis point cut. Uh, as you mentioned, there's been forbearance on loans. They've tried to compress credit risk premium by creating a window for banks to borrow from them and only buy investment grade uh, corporate bonds. And we've already seen those spreads come down 50 to 100 basis points. That was the first step. What is the next step? I think the next step is to ensure that as the lockdown ends, that working capital and credit is flowing from banks to small, medium enterprises. Remember, SMEs are going to come out of this having to pay salaries having to incur some other operating costs and having had no revenue for several weeks. So their working capital requirements will actually go up and banks will be reluctant to lend to them 
uh, precisely because they'd worry about uh, you know, solvency and the state of their balance sheets. So I think this is where policy has to be very creative. And like what we're seeing in the UK or what we're seeing in the US, the sovereign will have to step in with partial loan guarantees, you know, absorb the first loss from these loans to SMEs to make sure that banks have both enough incentive and enough backstop to make this lending. So I think the most important thing we can do right now is to ensure that we're creating the structures while the lockdown is on to ensure banks lend to SMEs when those working capital needs arise in a few weeks. I think the second thing we need to do is ensure financial stability. We already saw in the last few months that peripheral financial institutions, whether these are small private banks or non-bank financial companies, we're finding it slightly hard to roll over liabilities. If people worry about their asset quality post-COVID, that could become another constraint. So we need the RBI to provide liquidity to these markets so that a liquidity constraint does not morph into a solvency problem. Now, to be fair, the RBI started out well by ensuring that banks borrow from the RBI's window and and buy investment-grade corporate bonds, but that may well exacerbate the flight to quality. We, We may need liquidity down the credit curve, and I think we can think of creative ways to do that. And lastly, I would say we'll have to ensure that enough recapitalization funds are available for the financial sector uh, to the extent that uh, NPAs pick up and more capital is required to get lending again. Uh, We've been using government bonds over the last few years. And the advantage of that is it does not place an immediate fiscal constraint, though, of course, it pushes up debt to GDP. So if you ask me, what do we need to do in the next few weeks? It is these three things. Ensuring that our partial loan guarantees to lend to small medium enterprises, uh, ensuring that the RBI perhaps is doing a repo operation of corporate bonds. Uh, they can take you know, appropriate haircuts depending on credit quality to make sure that liquidity is flowing to all parts of the system and make sure that we have a plan for recapitalization if banks and the financial sector so needs that. Perfect, Sajid. So let me move on to something else. In a recent article, you had argued that during crisis, there is a risk that stimulus that is aimed at correcting temporary demand deficiency can become permanent. And for instance, that is what happened during the post-2008 financial crisis years, making us vulnerable to the taper tantrum episode of 2013. How can this be avoided? For instance, can the policy package be designed such that it is clear from the beginning upfront that the stimulus is temporary. Arvind, this is a very important question, I think, because in the spur of the moment, in the heat of the moment, uh, everybody will clamor for more stimulus. But we should also, when designing that package, as you said, uh, worry about the morning after. What do I mean by this? Again, in 2008, you know, the total fiscal deficit went up almost 4% of GDP. Uh, that may have been appropriate at that point in time, but it was designed in a manner that was difficult to roll back. It took several years to roll back. I think it was only around 2012 that it was fully rolled back. And by that time, you know, enough imbalances had developed that we were on the doorstep to the taper tantrum. So we should not forget those lessons from history, even in around the world we've seen that the normalization of unconventional monetary policy after the global financial crisis was so shallow that 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 contributed to the search for yield uh, and to the significant leverage that built up outside the banking system. So we should not forget the lessons from history. What are some of the principles that one can 
apply it to make sure that the package is deep, but it's temporary and state contingent. I think wherever possible, uh, use automatic stabilizers on the budget. We have one in terms of Enrega. I know we could always improve the design of Enrega, but the fact is it's a very important automatic stabilizer. When growth takes a hit and the economy is below potential, demand for Enrega picks up. And we saw that in 2019, 2020, where last year Enrega payouts were much higher. And as the economy recovers and people find jobs, then demand for Enrega automatically comes down. So I think use of Enrega is an important stabilizer. I think it should be made clear up front that any cash transfers are temporary. And therefore, I think the government has done very well by saying that the initial income support package is for three months and it would not be open-ended. Of course, it should be extended if the lockdown gets longer, but at least it, it has a sunset clause. I think the partial loan guarantees need to be designed well. You, on the one hand, you want to ensure there's enough liquidity flowing, uh, but it cannot be forever. Otherwise, it creates moral hazard. So maybe you want to link it to credit growth, that when credit growth for certain sectors picks up beyond a certain threshold, those loan guarantees are automatically withdrawn. And I think the other point over there, I'll just digress for 30 seconds, is there's a fine balance between providing liquidity during a crisis and ensuring that policy is not distorting the creative destruction that's inevitable on the other side of this pandemic. We will find that some SMEs may not be economically viable, you know, on the other end of COVID. On the other hand, there'll be opportunities for other SMEs in other sectors. So some resource reallocation and some creative destruction is inevitable. And I think a policy intervention should not distort that. Finally, I'll just say that you know tax cuts, I think, may not be particularly advisable in this environment because A, they have lower multipliers, and B, from a political economy perspective, they're much harder to reverse. So I think if we can adopt some of these principles, uh, then we will ensure that the support that we're offering now is deep, but it's designed to be temporary. And then foreign investors and ratings agencies will be convinced that there's a credible path to fiscal normalcy when the situation improves. Great, Sajid. Now, from the viewpoint of preparing for a future corona-like shock, I wanted to ask you what steps you thought might be necessary. Clearly, in the current context, one section of the population that seemed to kind of fall out of the net that's been designed is kind of migrant workers. What do you think can be done to address issues such as this better in the future? Do we have a targeted strategy to create you know, databases that allows the government to reach migrant workers in a more efficient and speedy manner in future emergencies? What do you think? Uh, That's a great question, uh, Praveen. I think to start with, India is relatively well-placed because over the last five or six years, we've been focusing a lot on this jam trinity, you know, Jandhan, where we have the bank accounts, Aadhaar, where we've got the unique identification and mobile technology. So we're seeing the benefits of putting that infrastructure in place in the sense that government can quickly transfer cash to a large swath of households at the bottom of the pyramid. So from that standpoint, we're quite well prepared, though that will be tested during this crisis. But as you rightly point out, I think the migrant worker situation will need uh, some thinking going forward. I think your idea of creating a database is a very good one. I think state and local authorities will have this information. And so we should create a database of these migrant workers, particularly because all of them have bank accounts 
because they're actually remitting uh, funds back uh, to their homes in, in villages. So I think once we have this database, we can adopt a more nimble and fast strategy uh, towards ensuring that resources reach them and they don't have to rush back home in a panic. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, now that we've got this reverse migration happening, and even though we expect the monsoon should be good and that will create demand for rural labor, it's possible with this reverse migration that rural wages are bid down. And therefore, again, it's important that uh, Enrega be used both to ensure that there's a, you know, there's a flaw in wages uh, and also temporarily to ensure that it acts as an automatic stabilizer for those who can't find jobs in the rural economy because it might be a while before the urban economy starts up. The lockdowns could extend longer over there. So to attract these migrant workers back to the cities, to construction sites uh, could take a while. So we need to make sure that there's some source of income and, and employment in the rural economy. Great, Sajid. I wonder if we could now turn a little bit to the external sector. You know, post-lockdown, what can we expect in terms of restoration of international trade and inflows of foreign investment? JP Morgan, your firm, has predicted the worst recession since World War II in the wake of COVID-19. Should that happen, what would it mean for India? Are there steps India can take to minimize the damage? That will come from the disruption in this area. Uh, thank you, Arvind. This is a, is a very good question. Uh, I think we sometimes don't fully appreciate just how much economic uh, damage we're expecting around the world. As you pointed out, our economists around the world feel that the, the size of the hole in the first and second quarter of 2020 is going to be twice as deep as what we saw after the Lehman crisis. And therefore, this is going to be easily uh, the most severe global recession since World War II. And not only is it the size of the pothole, it's the fact that the recovery around the world uh, is going to be quite shallow. There's going to be a lot of per a loss, permanent lost output. In fact, our estimates are, if you look at cumulative income losses to the fourth quarter of 2021, uh, they could amount to as much as 7% of global GDP. So we are expecting that there'll be a lot of demand destruction around the world. Uh, and that will result in higher unemployment, a lot of firms having to close, and therefore the recovery is going to be much more shallower. So the question is, you know, what are the different channels by which this affects India? Uh, we will not be immune to these global pressures because remember, exports are almost 20% of GDP. And we find typically that the elasticity of India's exports, especially the new age exports, is very high to global growth. So if we, if we experience a sharp uh, a contraction in global growth as we do in 2020, the impact on India's exports will be quite meaningful. Given that they're 20% of GDP, just the drag from the external sector uh, is going to be quite large, quite a part they hit to domestic demand. Tourism is only 1% of GDP, but you know, if tourism is down 40 or 50%, that alone you know, shaves off 50 basis points from headline growth. The one offset that India has, which other emerging markets don't have, is the benefit of oil. We're a very large oil importer, and we uh, forecast in JP Morgan that crude prices will average somewhere around $35 a barrel for the rest of this year. So the move from 65 to 35 is a very large positive terms of trade shock uh, that is going to help a little bit with growth, at least partially offset the other pressures. It provides some fiscal space. 
And I think most of all, it creates so many more buffers in the external sector. We're now forecasting for 2020-21, India to actually run a current account surplus. This will be the first surplus uh, since 2004. So I think oil helps in that front. Also, I just want to make one other point. At a time where there are a lot of capital outflows from emerging markets, a lot of currencies are coming under pressure, there are balance of payments issues in some countries, India stands relatively insulated. Uh, the rupee has outperformed most emerging markets uh, in this cycle. And there's been a significant improvement in our external sector. If we look at gross external financing requirements, for example, over the next 12 months, as a function of reserves, they're almost half the level they were during the 2013 taper tantrum. So the one silver lining to all of this is, even if India witnesses large capital outflows like other emerging markets, we've got many more buffers in place, high reserves, a lower relative gross financing requirements and a current account that may well be in surplus. Yes, Sajid, uh, there's one other question I wanted to ask you. In the longer run, it's likely that the process of shift in investments away from China, which is already underway due to high wages and the US-China trade war and so on, will be accelerated. Maybe there's even more likely given the supply chain disruptions we're seeing now in the context of COVID-19. What can India do to persuade multinationals to, that are leaving the shores of China to come to India instead? That's a great question, Praveen. The old adage goes, uh, never waste a crisis. And really, India should be seeing some opportunity out of this crisis because even before COVID, what we saw was uh, in the midst of the US-China trade war that several multinationals began to leave China I want, they wanted to diversify their supply chains across Asia. Uh, they were going to Vietnam. Uh, they were going to Taiwan. Uh, but only India has the size and the scale and the absorptive capacity to accept and absorb a meaningful part of the supply chain. Now, I think if COVID teaches us anything, it's the fact that uh, you know, the concentration risk from producing in any one country is perhaps something that firms and uh, around the world will not want to take. So I think this will precipitate diversification strategies uh, into other countries in Asia. And this is India's moment. You know, as we've discussed in the past, you know, if we aspire to grow at seven or eight percent for, for a decade, no country in the world has done that uh, without, you know, double digit export growth. And for India to get that double digit export growth, we'll have to become a part of the Asian supply chain. So this is a wonderful opportunity for India. What can we do? I think we started off last year with an important uh, corporate tax rate cut. So at least taxes for new manufacturing facilities in India now are comparable to other countries in the region. But I think we'll have to do more. Uh, I'm simply now you know, reading out of uh, Arvind's playbook and, and Praveen, what you've been saying, um, that India perhaps needs to create special economic zones because it may be too daunting to do all these uh, you know, factor market reforms on a national level. So why not we pick one or two special economic zones and really over there make sure land acquisition is seamless. Uh, there's a lot of labor flexibility. We provide world-class infrastructure. We provide good port connectivity. And if we do that, but importantly, we need to also be part of a free trade zone in Asia to be part of RCEP if in fact we aspire to be part of the supply chain. If we can do those things, there's no reason why multinational corporations would not want to come and produce in India. Now, once one of these zones actually succeeds, I think there are two very powerful demonstration effects. One demonstration effect is externally, where it's a message to the rest of the world that firms can produce in India just in time 
and that cost of production is competitive with other parts of Asia. So that's a demonstration effect for other firms to follow suit. And the second demonstration effect is internally, because if one or two special economic zones succeed and you get FDI coming in there and lots of jobs being created, then other states and other chief ministers will want to replicate that example. And we may well have competitive federalism, which will be advantages. So I think, you know, once we get through uh, the panic of COVID, uh, we shouldn't lose sight of the forest for the trees and the opportunities that this may open up for India uh, in time to come. Great, Sajid. I love your optimism and always share it. So that is all the time we have had for uh, today. But really appreciate your joining us. Hope we can have you again. The discussions and with you and the commentary by you are always extremely deep and, and uh, informative. So thanks. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Arvind. Thank you, Praveen. Thanks very much, Sajid. And everyone, please stay safe. Signing off, this is Praveen Krishna. And this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast, produced by Atisha Kumar, research scholar at Columbia University, and edited by Rebecca Megalwari at Insights at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.